Welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. This is the 11th of these podcasts with me, Jonathan Shaffey. I'm the campaign's organiser here at Commonweal and as ever delighted to be joined by Dr Craig Diel, who is the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. Welcome, Craig. Hello. You've been uh, doing well? I've been doing very well. Have you enjoyed your holiday? I have indeed, yes. Back and uh, refreshed and ready to to talk policy, (laughs) as ever. That's Um, good, because I'm away next week, so you're on your own. Good stuff, good (laughs) stuff. Um, Well, let's just get straight into it. I mean, I guess since we've uh, launched this podcast, we've been focused for a lot of that time on the Growth Commission and the run-up to the SNP conference. Yep. And then we've tackled a variety of other issues uh, since. But also we're now looking back at a number of policies which you feel are useful to highlight policy work that's already been done um, and and then looking at some of that in more detail. Yes, so essentially I want one of the missions for this podcast to be to go back through Commonweal's library and pull out all the policy papers that we have done one at a time and just explain them in a bit of detail Uh, in a way that's a bit more accessible to folk because some of these papers are quite long and dense and I know people don't want to always read 30 pages on macroeconomics or whatever the topic is. So we're hoping we can bring the information out to people uh, in a way that's a bit more digestible and if they're really interested after that then the policy paper's still there that you can go and, and, and pull apart and digest that way. Excellent. Well, let's get into uh, the subject matter then, because this week we're looking at Social Security, um, which has been something which has been very central, I think, to the drivers around independence, but the debates around austerity and all of the uh, questions that it throws up. I wonder then if in that way we could start by maybe just giving us an outline of, of what's going wrong. Um, what's going wrong with the UK system and, and how we might want to address it. Yeah, so this this discussion will be based on a policy paper that we wrote in 2017 called Social Security for All of Us, and there'll be a link in the description below. Um, yeah, it emerged in the over the course of the late 19th century and into the middle of the 20th century, the idea that governments should be more than just organs of power that they should have a responsibility towards the citizens that they, they rule. And the, the idea came about that people who were deprived or in poverty or needed help should be able to get that from the state. It, it came from various countries at different times. In the UK, the big sea change moment was the Beveridge Report mm. uh, in 1942, which led to the creation of um, things like the Universal State Pension, the NHS, and a whole swathe of of the UK's welfare system and it became something that that was rightly to be proud of in the UK especially the NHS Uh, as we're recording this Donald Trump's in the country he's just been on a a press conference with Theresa May and he he has just announced that he wants all parts of the UK economy to be open for negotiation in the trade deal that uh, the UK is going to be having post-Brexit, including the NHS. It's very clear the, the US negotiators have been saying for some time that they want in on our healthcare system to privatise it and to start uh, pulling profit out of it. So there's, there are risks here, but there are also risks at home. Uh, the UK uh, in recent years, especially with the Conservative government, has been pulling apart the UK's welfare system 
and has been doing it for ideological reasons. This was the conclusion of the uh, the UN report on poverty that we discussed uh, mm. in one of the previous podcasts, where they were saying that this is a this isn't about making things fairer or even about saving money. This is a deliberate attack on the poorest and most vulnerable people in the UK. We're seeing this sort of thing with universal credit, the way it has been rolled out, and the way it really penalises people and forces them to jump through hoops on the threat of sanctions, forces extraneous paperwork on people to to even get these these benefits. Um, I'll speak a bit later about why I I despise that term. Um, But it's also a paltry amount that is stripped away from you as you earn. There's a a concept in a lot of, of Social Security known as the taper rate. So if you are earning money on top of, if you're earning an income on top on top of your benefits, then the, the benefit will be progressively tapered off. A little bit, a little bit like your income is with income tax. Mm. So for universal credit, this taper rate can be around sixty three percent. So if you're on universal credit and you <coughs> earn a pound, your universal credit could be reduced by around sixty three pence. Yeah. So that's effectively a 63% income tax for the poorest in society. But compare that to the top rate of income tax, yeah. where the, especially the Tories are saying it would be absolutely terrible if, it would, if, if we increased that to 50, 50%. You know, people would stop working, it would be an awful thing. And yet for the poorest, 63% is fine, and it encourages you to work. And so the priorities are always um, with uh, the very richest. Yes. Which I guess kind of takes us on to the next element of this discussion, which is how do you see Scotland's welfare not just transitioning, but I guess how do you view it um, changing in, in terms of how it's viewed, how it's um, discussed and how it's um, uh, developed around policy um, post-independence? Well, not just post-independence, uh, even just within Scotland with the the, the very, very limited powers that we're That's receiving, yep. where the first thing that is changing is the language. Yep. Instead of welfare and benefits, as if the state is granting you this largesse and can withdraw mm. it at whim, in, in Scotland we have a Department of Social Security. And that's a very vital distinction in language. Much better. Much more positive, much more foundational to your entire society yeah. that everybody is able to, to, to live comfortably. Yeah. Um, it's also quite interesting that one of the impacts this paper had, while our paper discusses options post-independence and therefore is talking about stuff that can't be done right now with the limited powers we have, mm. this paper did influence the thinking within the Scottish Government on how the Social Security Department should be set up um, they they found that they had to set this department up in a way that it could be easily expanded if mm. Scotland received more welfare powers or if we became independent and we took control of all of social security. So I was quite proud of that, that we had that very small but quite important bit of influence. And I think that thinking has tapered through into uh, other uh, departments when, when you're talking about the process of becoming independent. Yeah. And you have to understand that this is an area that is probably going to be the trickiest to pull apart from the UK in the terms of how it interacts with the everyday lives of a lot of people. 
because one thing we can't do, and we've learned this from universal credit, if you are changing the system that people are, are relying on, literally relying on, if there's any break, any gap in that, if you have to wait, as you often do with universal credit, for several weeks between your last payment and your next one, then that can cause real hardship. Yeah. So when we are talking about transitioning to an independent state, this is something that will have to be considered very, very carefully. Because this, this causes harm right now in the UK. There's been studies showing that, I think there was a study last week, that said as a result of austerity, as a result of the transition to universal credit and all these welfare changes, you know, 130,000 people have have died prematurely. Not all of that just due to one cause, but through the whole gamut of austerity. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. I'll, again, I'll put a news article in the, in the description. But also, I mean, that is reflective of how the Tories have prioritised their policy yeah. demands and all the rest of it. And of course we know that there's a wider attack taking place on uh, on social security, which is about privatisation, which is about uh, uh, how it intersects with uh, austerity, for example. But one other area um, that um, all of this feeds into is um, the question of immigrants and asylum seekers and access and, and how that's been politicised. Yes. And this is another element which the paper uh, covers. Um, maybe tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, again, this was covered in the UN Poverty Report a uh, uh, couple of weeks ago where it was saying that the, the Tory ideology is that the best way out of poverty is to work. Mm. And whether you agree with that or not, what has been set up in the UK is a system where the most vulnerable people in our society, asylum seekers are not allowed to work. Yeah. So destitution, this report said, has been deliberately built in as a design feature into the UK's welfare system. It's a deliberate act. It's a deliberate act, yeah. yes. And it is not being fixed. So what we are saying is that when we're designing an independent Scottish social security system, then it is vital that immigrants, asylum seekers... Residents of Scotland, regardless of citizenship status, mm. should mm. be looked after appropriately. And mm. if that means, you know, talking about access to work, certainly. If we're talking about access to benefits for uh, social, to social security, especially if we're starting to talk about universal basic income, which we'll talk about a bit later, mm. then these things should be considered as, as part of the the social fabric of the entire society, everyone in it. And of course, they've weaponised and um, deployed the the usual divide and rule uh, stuff when it comes to the question of immigrants. But they've done that while at the same time cutting services yeah. and privatising parts of the NHS and all that sort of thing. It's a very deliberate strategy, as, as you point out. And one of the, I guess, one of the the places that lots of people in the independence movement have looked towards. Um, and that people like Leslie Riddick, for example, have talked a lot about, uh, is about Nordic models yeah. for re a range of, of policy areas. But when it comes to Social Security, 
Um, do you have any thoughts on, on, on the Nordic model, how that might be applied, what maybe its pros and cons are? Because yeah. um, I know that's another thing that's covered in the paper. Yeah, so in the paper we look at the percentage of uh, spending on social security and healthcare along various European countries. And in that, the UK comes out just below average. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mostly because we, we we put a lot more emphasis on healthcare, we put less emphasis on, on um, welfare, and we end up coming out kind of meddling. Um, the Nordic countries, almost all of them, spend far more on Social Security than mm. the UK does. Um, if Scotland wanted to spend proportionately the same uh, as Finland does, for example, that would represent an extra £8.2 billion pounds per year into uh, being put into the social security and healthcare system. So an extra £8.2 billion to meet what Finland does? Yes, um, proportionally. Proportionally, yes. yeah. Quite incredible. Yeah, I mean... Finland does have generally higher wages, higher taxes. Everything's higher in the round. They have a higher living standard in general in Scotland. Mm. So this is something that we might want to consider. If we want to move towards that Nordic horizon, then we are talking about uplifting the society across the board. And that also, of course, relates to what people are doing for work. The nature of work, the nature of what jobs are available... There's been a huge discussion around uh, that kind of thing in relation to globalisation, uh, for example, and, and we're seeing some of the, the political results of that unfold. Um, but the paper does have something very specific to say about jobs, and in particular about a job guarantee scheme. Yeah. Uh, to me, I think all of the, the paper's important, but this to me is, I think, of particular interest because I think it's something that, if we could promote, it's something that builds into the society a, a wider sense of solidarity and the possibility for organising in unions and so on. So yeah. so maybe tell us a bit then about the, the job guarantee scheme, the, the kind of outlines of that. Yeah, so right now if you, in the UK, if you're out of work, you might want to claim job seekers allowance, which is on paper an amount of money that is given to you and you are then encouraged to apply for jobs in the private market. A job guarantee scheme the government would be the employer employer of last resort. It would always have a job available that you could accept. Um, these schemes have been tried in various places. Now, a lot of these schemes aren't necessarily quite so directly applicable to Scotland. So there's a particularly successful uh, job guarantee scheme that happens in parts of India where it's targeted specifically at women. And... It gives women effectively a guaranteed job for, I believe, eight months. Um, it's well paid. It is infrastructure and agrarian work. Um, but anyone who wants a job, who who qualifies, can take it. Now, as I say, in Scotland, there's going to have to be a discussion, more detail about what kind of jobs would be available. One of the downsides of a job guarantee scheme is it works really well if the people who are unemployed have skills that match the jobs that are available and are needed and they can fairly seamlessly move into them. Uh, It doesn't work so well if there is large-scale structural unemployment, by which I mean the the skills that are needed in the 
the economy aren't matched by the skills that people have. So I'm a former laser physicist. Let's say, for example, there aren't very many lasers needing built in Scotland and I'm out of work. The job guarantee scheme might not have a job available for me. Mm. It's quite a specialist, quite a, a highly skilled area that takes several years of training to get into. Mm. I couldn't, for example, jump straight into a job in a steel mill. I don't have those skills. Other people might have. It's also a geographical thing. If you're unemployed in Caithness and the job guarantee scheme can only give you a job in Dumfries, that's not so easy to to take up. Um, So there are downsides to this as well. Uh, Personally, I don't think that the job guarantee scheme is a particularly good solution uh, in terms of replacing social security. For, because there will be people who don't want to work for whatever reason. Some, and there will be people who are unable to work mm. for whatever reason. And, and that's, that's fine. Um, but the, the job guarantee scheme won't be able to help them in the same, in the same way. Uh, I'm, I'm actually really interested to hear your thoughts on this, um, how, how this does relate into things like um, the, the labour movement and... Uh, the, the, the sort of struggle there. Well, I think there's uh, there's a number of questions that it raises, which I think that you've just done. Um, clearly, I mean, I think that this has to be twinned with a wider uh, planning, wider economic planning mm. um, at the same time, which which I think this paper, when you add it alongside the papers that Commonwealth's done on the economy and investment-led economy and so on, starts to create a, a wider picture of the kind of economy we'd be looking to build. I know we're going to talk about income tax and, and issues related to that, but, but I guess actually this is now a good point to segue into the universal basic income yeah. question because that's, again, another big debate that's taking place in and around the yeah. trade union and labour movement. Uh, and actually, there's quite a number of people who have got some criticisms of it, um, but people who would agree uh, with with you on basically everything else. So it's an area where there's work needing done, and this paper has done some work on that. Mm. Um, What's your view of universal basic income, and how do you see it fitting within the the array of... um, Social security questions we've talked about so far. Well, it's actually it's actually worth saying on the on the, the economic planning side of things that mm. this is maybe something where the Green New Deal becomes a major feature. Very much so, yeah. Because that is going to involve a large amount sure. of government level planning in the economy as Absolutely. we reconfigure it into a, an environmentally sustainable model. Um, the job guarantee scheme we are going to come back to. We um, there, there's going to be a paper published by Commonweal um, at some point in the summer on on this. Uh, on the universal basic income now, this is the policy that five years ago you would have been laughed out of the room for suggesting it. Very true. Three yeah. years ago, people would have asked you what it was. Mm. Now, people want to know when you can start one. Mm. The concept of a universal basic income is instead of the uh, needs-based welfare, like universal credit, your, your income has fallen below a certain level, therefore you qualify for this this benefit it's different even from contribution based mm-hmm. welfare like the state pension you have paid into the system for x number of years therefore you are entitled to y pension a universal basic pension sorry universal basic income is an amount of money given to every resident of scotland every month regardless of the circumstances if they are earning over a certain amount then you might 
raise income tax to to sort of compensate to to partially yeah, or, yeah, partially yeah. or completely offset that, but everybody receives this income, and that sense of universality. One, it's much easier to do, mm. much cheaper to administer a, a universal system than a means-based system because you don't need to have people checking applications. Calculations. You don't need, you don't need to do the calculations. Yeah. You don't need the enforcement department to make sure people aren't cheating. You also don't need the verification department to make sure people aren't people who could apply are applying. This is one of the things we often talk about: the people who are cheat, benefit cheats who are claiming more than they are due. The, when you actually look at the numbers of the people who are not claiming things that they are due, that number is substantially higher. So, we, so how do you see this? Has, this is clearly becoming a more popular yep. idea, right? And I'm just thinking, how do you, how does this work alongside the other things that we've that we've discussed? If everyone's getting that basic income, yep. for example. Um, well, it depends on the level of the basic income. Sure, now, we which have is a, something we should come on to. Yeah. yeah. Um, if that basic income is one that is up towards the sort of living wage type mm. basic income, mm. where you are able to have a comfortable, sustainable life on it, then that is a very different type of universal basic income from one that allows you to barely subsist and no more. Mm. Mm. Um, there's also questions over the ideological motivation behind the basic income so a uh, left wing basic income is about supporting the entire society a right wing basic income might be about giving people money so that the government doesn't need to provide services so instead of providing healthcare and education instead you get money or a voucher and you can go and buy those services from the private market exactly these are all yeah. very different types of society even though they're all they're all underpinned by the same policy this is why you get people across the political spectrum all supporting UBI they've all got very different motivations for doing so that's a very very clear way of breaking that question down and I guess why I was asking about how does UBI in the in this paper connect up with all the other yeah. facets around um, services and so on is because when we talk about UBI it has to be talked about in that kind of context I mean my guess my worry about it and there's a wider concern about this and something that we have to consider is precisely what you've just said that there is a, a right wing or a neoliberal version of the, the basic income which actually is about increasing opportunities for privatisation yeah. I mean, just to give you one example of, of, of a few concerns that there, there might be. But this comes as part of a package, and I think that's uh, something that we can we can look to explore. Yeah. But let's say... Uh, I mean, I, I can yeah. actually give you a really good example of where universal basic income would have had a profound impact on my life. That'd be good, um, yeah. Just after I left the laser sector, I was looking around for, for jobs. I wasn't having that much success finding one. I came up with a business idea. I wanted to open a shop. Mm started to develop it and then discovered that I couldn't afford for that venture to fail. Mm. If if I had started that venture and it failed, I would have been put into very significant financial hardship. I couldn't take the risk on that business venture, so I didn't. Now, it's probably good for fans of the podcast because I wouldn't be sitting here today if I had. Mm. But if I had had a universal basic income, I would have had that financial security and I might have went ahead with that. And there must be dozens, hundreds, thousands of people across the country who have that idea for entrepreneurship or for expanding a business or for doing something that is economically or financially 
risky to themselves and are being held back because they don't have that financial security. Mm. That's just one reason why a universal basic income is a really good idea in my, my mind. Well, I mean, it's good to apply it to our kind of real-life situation. Mm-hmm. I think we, when we're discussing policies, it's, it's useful for us to do that um, more generally. But I guess that does come now to the, the next and uh, towards the end of the, the report about negative income tax. Yeah. Explain that to the <laughs> listeners. So this is a, another idea that actually came out of the, the American sort of libertarian movement but has fed through again, like UBI, has fed through the, 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 the gamut of the political spectrum. It's a slight distinction on this. right? We are used to the idea of a progressive tax system where people earning a lot get taxed a lot, people earning less get taxed a bit less, and we have a tax-free allowance, effectively a 0% tax rate on our lowest income. Mm. Imagine instead of that you had a negative tax. So what that means is if your income falls below a certain level, the the shortfall uh, is calculated and uh, you get an automatic tax credit based on a percentage of that shortfall. Okay. So yeah. the model we used in the paper, um, it's fairly arbitrary. You can play with these numbers as much as you like. But what we said was set the threshold at a living wage and if your income falls below the living wage, you will get a tax credit. If your income was zero, for instance, if you were out of work, then that tax credit would equal the current UK job seekers allowance. Okay. Right. So we just picked those numbers as an illustrative example, but that would be a, a system that could slot quite easily into the current uh, UK welfare system. Get rid of job seekers allowance, replace it with a negative income tax. Now people, if they have no work, they get the same amount as if they were on job seekers, but now they don't have to apply for job seekers and now they don't have to jump through all the hoops of sanctions. Mm. which is an advantage in and of itself Mm. but also as they earn then that tapers off at a slower rate than universal credit so there's not that disincentive to work and then it tapers off completely by the time they they, they are earning enough to live a decent life and this is something that you say has got some support across different parts of the political spectrum or or originally did and now has been taken up by by Mm. people like yourselves well it's it's an interesting... Uh, it probably has more support on the right because one of the disadvantages of the negative income tax compared to proponent to universal basic income, especially for proponents of UBI, is that it still maintains that link between income and work. Mm-hmm. We are moving into a society and an economy where maybe we have to start thinking about breaking down that, uh, that idea. That, um, and again, you have this issue of people who are unable to work, for example, are not able to, to uh, join that parade of people who are striving in society, for, to, to use that, that very that divisive kind of, yeah, language. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, so, there's also the issue with this compared to UBI that it does taper off to zero. So if you are earning above the threshold... Mm. You're you are now not receiving that social security, whereas someone else is. You get that idea that some people will take up that. Why are my taxes paying for that person? This is a feature of a lot of means tested benefits. Mm. Um, whereas a universal basic income, everybody gets it, so everybody is invested in making sure that it's as high as possible. Um, there are examples of of that universality becoming really really popular. 
in places like Alaska, where Alaska mm. doesn't have a UBI, but it does have a, a citizens fund that's based off their oil revenue. So everybody gets an amount. It's it's, it's around about a thousand to two thousand dollars a year, but everybody likes this, no matter how much they're earning. It's a very popular uh, policy. What's quite interesting about the, the negative income tax is you may have heard of Finland's experiment with UBI. Uh, they did a two-year study on UBI. They tried to apply for a, a, another two-year extension to it, but the incoming centre-right government uh, decided that they didn't want to carry that on, so the, the, the experiment has ended. They have just announced that now they want to do an experiment on with negative income tax. So it'll be very interesting to follow that over the next couple of years. And then we can compare and contrast with actual real-life data which of these two policies works best. Well, uh, thankfully we have uh, people like yourself who can uh, take that data and and digest it. But just coming towards the end, we've talked about a whole range of of questions, of issues that create this package uh, in the paper, which, as you've pointed out, will be linked uh, below this uh, podcast. I wonder then, though, if you could just draw the discussion together and come up with any of the kind of clear conclusions or motivations you have to to really drive this forward and to keep pushing for this kind of holistic social security system. Well, for me, the universal basic income has to be a part of that. Mm. I think that's essential. Um, It's definitely a policy uh, whose time has come. And I would love for Scotland to be the first country to institute a full, comprehensive, truly universal basic income. Mm. Uh, Or, if we're not independent by the time someone else does it, at least we can get in there as soon as we can. I'm also very interested in the job guarantee scheme. I don't see it as a replacement to Social Security, again, because of that link to work. Um, And even, even for folk who are doing work who are labouring there there are people who don't consider that labour to be work. Take the distinction between, for example, a professional carer mm. who takes on clients compared to someone who cares for a family member. Mm. They might be doing substantially the same job but, but, have, one, views, yeah. but, have, but have different views about what that, that labour is. Is it a job or is it a responsibility? Yeah. So I see a real a real place for job guarantee scheme. As I say, we're we're going to be looking at a paper on that later in the year. I would love that to be part of the mix. If mm. I could only ever pick one of the policies we discussed in the paper, it would be UBI. Okay. Yeah. But if I could have two, the job guarantee scheme would be there as well. And then when you think about how they knit together with the, the range of other issues and uh, policy proposals yeah. that we've talked about, then it creates that package. Yeah, especially um, when you start talking about the investment-led economy and the Green New Deal all and all these sort of major yeah. transformations yeah. that are going to dominate economic thinking over the next two decades. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that certainly I think is appealing about Commonwealth is that the policies that are produced can actually and do work best when they're seen as a, a framework around yeah. which they all function together whether it's how we heat our homes or how we invest in the economy or how we build renewables, whatever it might be. Um, and that's, I think, why this uh, podcast is important, that we can go through these issues. Uh, I think, though, that that's probably quite a, a decent discussion on this. Um, and uh, as I always say um, at this point in the podcast, we really are um, organised on a shoestring basis in terms of our funding, and yet that we are producing these policies, the campaigns that we do, the new website, um, all of the things that we've got uh, planned uh, for the year ahead, that we do all that on such a low 
amount of money comparatively um, shows what we could do with even more money and donations coming in. Um, So please do leave a donation for us, become a monthly subscriber. That will be linked as well uh, below the podcast. Uh, Craig, any last remarks from yourself? Only to say that this is another one of the the joys that have come out of the independence campaign that Scotland is starting to look ahead at what it could be and it can start to imagine possibilities that it cannot have within the current UK. So I love thinking about this. I'm sure folk out there want uh, want to be talking about more, more of this stuff as well. So we have an entire policy library there. Folks, pick a paper, send it to me and say I want to discuss that one and we will. Well, that's a great place to end uh, the podcast. Thanks very much again for listening. Share the links on your social media. Donate to us if you can. We're looking to expand. And until next time, we will uh, wish you you a good week ahead and we look forward to discussing the next policy uh, next week.